as we saw in our previous readings, uh, the world had fallen into disrepair. And we can see that all around us sometimes when we think things are clearly going wrong. We see death and destruction and can't help but think that this is not the way that things were supposed to be. In the church year, we're just finishing up Advent, uh, which is a time when Christians grieve the state of the world and hope and pray that Jesus will come again and set the world right and make it the way that things were always supposed to be. There are so many issues we see today that we, see, that we can clearly see that have no real uh, fits. Stuff like poverty, poverty and crime and addiction and depression are all over the place. And we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. And we try our best to set it right, but sometimes there's not much we can do but to look forward to the day when Jesus returns to us and wipes every tear from our eyes and makes it okay. Put simply, this was because humans sinned. And when humans sinned, they were exiled from God's presence. And everything was always meant to live in God's presence. So that meant when things fell apart, that he wasn't, when he wasn't there. God gave humans a moral law written on their hearts. And as long as they followed the law, things were a little, a little bit better. But as time went on, things only got worse. As we've seen so far, the covenant that God made with Israel was meant to save the whole world from this constant destruction. And the way that was going to happen was that Israel would obey God's commandments, keep the terms of his covenant with him, and then from Israel's, Israel's God, blessing and presence would flow out to the whole world. In other words, the whole world was never going to obey God's commandments, and so God appointed one people group as a representative of all of them. If only Israel would obey, then the whole world would be blessed by God. Israel was supposed to be the beginning of a new creation that would slowly spread out and save everyone. The world would finally go back to the way it was supposed to be. But then even Israel completely failed to follow God's commandments. The vineyard God planted only yielded bad fruits, and Israel was completely useless in saving the world. God would have been easily forgiven in giving up on Israel, or even giving up on the world as a whole. But that's not the kind of God he is. God is slow to anger, abounding in love, and he takes his commitments more seriously than we can imagine. Somehow, God was going to fulfill his end of the deal to save the world through Israel, even if Israel had made no efforts to do it themselves. So when God saw that nobody on earth was able to keep his commandments, he entered to the world in history, born as an Israelite under the commandments of the law. Basically, when the covenant was not kept by anyone in the world, God came down and kept it himself. God promised that Israel would save the world if it kept his commandments. And now, since God has become an Israelite and kept his commandments for them, that meant that the world would now be saved and all the blessings of the covenant would actually come true. When Christ was raised from the dead, his risen body was the very beginning of God's physical new creation that was going to spread through the whole world, through the church, and save it. That's the same God that the church worships. The church is supposed to be the ambassadors of the king that saves the world. But sometimes it looks like the church has messed up a whole lot in the same world ways that the world is. In the end, though, God is somehow going to save the world through us because he made it the commitment to do it, and he takes his commitment seriously. You can see the beginning of how God does it in these passages. And this is from Matthew. Uh, now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived from her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through his prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until he had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Then in the next chapter, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or older, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Jesus is repeating the whole history of Israel all by himself, except now, that now he's doing it without sinning. Here he goes to Egypt and then is freed and brought back to the promised land, just like Israel went down to Egypt and came back to the promised land. In the next chapter, he passes through a river in baptism, just like Israel passed through a river on the way out of Egypt. After that, Israel went to the desert and was tempted for the first time and failed miserably. In the same way, Jesus went into the desert to be tempted, but actually succeeded. Basically, Jesus was everything that Israel was ever supposed to be, right up until the very end. Where Adam and Eve failed in the Garden of Eden, Jesus succeeded in the Garden of Gethsemane, obeying God his Father even when, it, even when it caused him suffering. Israel was meant to bear the suffering of the world, and they failed. So Jesus did that on the cross. He bore the full weight of the sins and suffering and violence of the whole world so that all creation would be set free from it. Where they failed to follow God's commandments, Jesus succeeded. And that meant that the deal that God had with Israel to save the world was still on. The law and all its commandments had been fulfilled, and every last one of us can now benefit from it. The blessings of God's good and just reign have begun to flow out to the whole world, and the whole earth is going back to the way it was always supposed to be. And we know this will continue to be the case, because God takes his commitments so seriously that he entered the world and fulfilled our end of the deal so that he could fulfill his. In the end, Jesus rose from the dead, and he began this new crea- whole new creation, where everything goes back to the way it was supposed to be. Everything sad in the world is coming untrue, because Jesus is coming again. Very soon, we're about to take communion, and communion is meant to be very similar to the celebration of Passover for the Jews, which was the original story about how God won the victory that freed Israel from slavery. There's a reason that Jesus died at Passover, and that association is made all the more clear in this passage from John 19, 31 to 37. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. 
For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. The scripture which John references, which says not one of his bones will be broken, is taken from the instructions that God gave the Israelites about how they're supposed to celebrate the Passover. When they prepare the lamb that is supposed to be sacrificed and then shared and eaten by everyone present, God gave the instruction that none of the bones of the lamb should be broken. It's clear what John is doing here. He was saying that this Jesus was the new lamb of God's new Passover. Just like at Passover, Jesus won the victory that freed us from slavery to sin by dying on the cross. Passover was also about the day when God adopted Israel as his own special people with the mission to save the world by bearing the presence of God with them. At communion, we celebrate the day when God, at great cost to himself, on the cross adopted the church as his own special people with the mission to save the world by bearing the presence of God with them wherever they go and by obeying his commandments to love God and neighbor. At Passover, they fed on a lamb that was meant to bring into mind the history of the day when God freed Israel. At communion, we're also symbolically taking part in God's new creation that started so explosively in Christ's resurrection. When Jesus says, this is my body, and bids us to eat, is a recognition that us normal Christians have been infused with the life of God's new creation, which was Jesus' own resurrected body. And of course that's true. It would be impossible for us to be free from slavery to sin otherwise, just like it was impossible for Israel. As we've seen, what child is this? Notice that in the first two lines, they use two euphemisms for death, laid to rest and sleeping, as the death of Christ is in view from the very beginning of his life. Another verse says, Nails, spear shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. The child was born the king to conquer and save the world, but he wasn't doing it in the trappings of a great conqueror brandishing a sword. Instead, he would save the world by shedding his own blood and by bidding us to be infused with his resurrected body. It's difficult to be wise enough to see the authority of this king, though, because he doesn't come with a golden crown, but with a crown of thorns, not with an ornate throne, but with the cross, not with a bed laced with ivory, but lying in a manger. But that means that Jesus was setting up a new kind of kingdom, which wasn't interested in status or honor, and didn't recognize the authority of a sword, but the authority of self-giving love. But we're going to need to recognize this authority, or we'll be back at square one, slowly destroying ourselves. The king of kings salvation brings. Come, peasant king, to own him. <laughs>